Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today's a big day in the world of Fortnite, Epic versus Apple, and everything that we have been following in this space as the court has finally issued its order on the preliminary injunction that Epic was seeking. Now, this is a long document. We're going to dive right in. Undoubtedly, you can already see if you've clicked on this just how long this conversation is. But at the top, I wanted to give those folks that only pop in that maybe don't like the hour plus long videos of this nature what is happening so that they can get the too long didn't watch version of events. And I think it's pretty easy to summarize where the ultimate decision ends up. And then we can talk about the court's reasoning at a more fulsome level. And that's all contained in this introduction. Preliminary injunctive relief is an extraordinary measure rarely granted. Plaintiff Epic Games Inc.'s lawsuit against defendant Apple Inc.'s challenges the fundamental operation of digital platforms affecting millions of users. Now, it's worthwhile to note there that the court references digital platforms, not just iOS devices. And we will see that the court, as we suggested as part of this series, is very concerned about the entire nature of a walled garden ecosystem and doesn't really buy that Epic's theory of this case doesn't affect things like the Xbox and the PlayStation and wants to adjudicate that more before making big, big decisions like a preliminary injunction in favor of a company like Epic. To resolve the request, the court must apply statutes enacted more than a century ago to a technology context where lawyers and economists can merely hypothesize about the future of the digital frontier. While courts are charged with adjudicating cases of significant impact, they do so cautiously and on full records with the status quo intact. That on full records concept is really going to be the baseline of the court's decision making here. That we are in a novel land of a legal landscape that hasn't really been determined and we need to be super, super cautious about actually issuing things like a preliminary injunction, especially one that would force one of the parties to include an application on their service that was in direct breach of the black letter wording of their contracts. And in the absence of that full record, we will see the court is just generally unwilling to use its preliminary injunction powers on Epic's behalf. Epic Games asks the court to force Apple to reinstate Fortnite to the Apple App Store despite its acknowledged breach and to stop Apple from terminating its affiliates' access to developer tools for other applications. Having carefully considered the party's arguments and for the reasons set forth more fully below, the court maintains its findings from the temporary restraining order and hereby grants in part and denies in part Epic Games' motion for a preliminary injunction. Now, that temporary restraining order was issued at the end of August on even smaller and shorter briefs than what we saw at the preliminary injunction level. But suffice it to say, what it says is that Apple doesn't have to keep Fortnite on its store. Apple doesn't have to continue having Epic Games, the unit that makes Fortnite as a contract partner, as a developer on the App Store or in the iOS ecosystem in and of itself, but they can't take actions against the Epic affiliate entities, most specifically Epic Sorrel slash Epic International that's in charge of the Unreal Engine. Now, as we will see towards the end of this document, this actually has one additional proviso uh, as a limiter on what Epic can do, which isn't really a surprise saying that Epic can't violate the existing guidelines with respect to this right to use Unreal. Uh, but outside of that, 
all this document winds up saying, even for 39 pages that we are going to discuss as part of this video, is that that temporary restraining order that was eight or 12 pages long, that's going to be held, held for the entirety of the litigation. That's going to be what is going to govern your behavior. Now, these are appealable, and whether or not Apple does or Epic does is an open question. I can't really predict the business strategies of those entities, but as of right now, this is what will hold throughout the litigation, unless... Epic changes and decides to take off that direct payment option from Fortnite, which we will also see they have the option to do in this document. But if that's what you're interested in, the top line results of all this, Fortnite out, Unreal in, the court locks up what they decided in August, and then we get a lot of reasoning from there. So let's dive into that. Given the novelty and the magnitude of the issues, as well as the debate in both the academic community and society at large, footnote one, and one of the things I will recommend, and I think I have recommended in this series as well as elsewhere on this channel, is that if you are following legal documents, whether you're a law student or just somebody interested in these kinds of things, always check out the footnotes. The footnotes are where the court puts some of its most pointed commentary and also explains its thought process in a way that maybe it doesn't fully explain just using legal precedent and legal sentence structure. Here we see the answer to a question that a number of people posed earlier this week to me, which is what is the court going to do with this antitrust report that the subcommittee for the judiciary put out there just a couple of days ago? And we see it as follows. We see it referenced as a debate in the academic community and society at large, investigation of competition in digital marketplaces, and that the court finds it appropriate to take judicial notice of public documents generated by Congress. We acknowledge that it exists and we don't need to be further briefed. It doesn't need to be introduced to us, but because it was delivered so late and it's 400 some odd pages long, the court does not consider the content therein for purposes of this motion. Now, Epic will undoubtedly introduce certain of the sentences that are included in that report, either again to this court, potentially to a court of appeals. We don't know what Epic is going to do. I have given up trying to predict what Epic and Tim Sweeney is going to do on a strategic level. But at the end of the day, the court says, look, given the novelty, given the fact that there is debate in a political sphere, in an academic sphere, the court is unwilling to tilt the playing field in favor of one party or the other with an early ruling of likelihood of success on the merits. They do say Epic Games has strong arguments regarding Apple's exclusive distribution through the iOS App Store and the in-app purchase system through which Apple takes 30% of certain IAP payments. However, given the limited record, Epic Games has not sufficiently addressed Apple's counter arguments. And so here we are. Court unwilling to use its special powers when it doesn't have this fulsome record. Now we get a little bit of background. I think we're all pretty familiar with the background here, but there are a couple of pieces that I wanted to pull out that the court finds important and that it's important to understand for the context of this case. As alleged, absent Apple's alleged anti-competitive conduct, Epic Games would also create an analogous Epic Games store for the iOS platform independent of Apple's digital marketplace, right? The, the end game here, what Epic wants to do is not so much debate 30% or tying or all these various other things. They want to break... Apple's ability to make their app store exclusive on the iOS operating system, on their iPhones and on their iPads, because they want to introduce an EGS, just like they did on PC against Steam, onto iOS against the app store. That's their end game. That's what they want to do. Apple says it's our hardware. We don't have to let you do that. And that's what this fight is really all about. 
Now, the court also notes that the relationship between Epic Games and Apple dates to at least 2011. And the reason I pulled that out here is because one of the things that came with oral argumentation was when did Apple become a monopolist? When did they become somebody that was operating illegally under the Sherman Antitrust Act? And the Epic Council really struggled with this. The answer they gave was, I think, 2018. Uh, But they have been involved with Apple for a very long time. And one of the real tricks that Epic, I don't really think, has successfully cleared, that the hurdle that they haven't passed is that they have to establish that Apple did something with that monopoly power. And Apple really hasn't changed on these fronts with respect to IAP or the 30% rate since Epic has been involved with them. So again, we've talked about this earlier in the series, but Epic is a pretty bad plaintiff for these particular claims. And, and this is one of the reasons why, because Epic and Apple were so affiliated so early in the life cycle of the App Store. On June 30th, 2020, the developer program licensing agreements for the Epic Games account, the Epic International account, and the Epic Games Enterprise account were renewed by the payment of separate consideration. I highlight that because the court does note that as important in a number of places. Epic is again saying, hey, look, Epic Sorrel, Epic International, paid a different $99, signed a different contract on a different day. They can't just terminate all of these things. And if they could, that would be a problem even under their own contracts. And the court doesn't necessarily buy that entirely, but it is still important enough to get them across the line to protect Unreal, as we will see. Then you see some language that I pulled out because you never want to see this from the judge if if you're epic, right? In fulfilling Mr. Sweeney's promise to pursue this perceived injustice, Epic Games covertly introduced a hotfix. Epic Games did not disclose the full extent of this hotfix to Apple. Relying on the representations that intentionally omitted the full extent and disclosure of this hotfix, Apple approved of the Fortnite version 13.40 on the App Store. Epic Games disputes that its use of the hotfix was deceptive, where it is common practice in the gaming and software industry. The deceptive conduct does not derive from Epic Games' use of the hotfix specifically, but from using a hotfix to clandestinely add features in violation of the guidelines and its agreements with Apple, and then failing to disclose such code. Moreover, Epic Games did this despite receiving an unambiguous refusal from Apple only a few weeks prior to the introduction of its hotfix. Epic Games' adamant refusal to understand this basic distinction is not only baffling, but undermines its credibility with this court. Don't bring this up again. I don't buy it, and it makes you look like liars. This is about as strong of a bit of language as you will see in a court document of this type. I tend to agree that the whole hotfix kind of concept was always trying to steal a base because, yes, they had a hotfix, but they never told Apple what it did. Apple can't review every line of code that they put in, and Apple has rules about not hiding things from them, and Epic was always trying to steal that base. You see the court refer to it as a calculated decision. You see the court has an issue with the marketing campaign, which they bring up again, including a limited time skin in Fortnite called the Tart Tycoon, modeled presumably on Mr. Cook's likeness. Yes, I think I referred to it as modeled after Steve Jobs when I first reported on that particular skin. Much apologies. The court clearly has the better of that argument, as did many, many commenters who pointed out that it was a more close resemblance to Mr. Tim Cook. On August 28, 2020, on the expiration of the two-week deadline, Apple terminated Epic Games' developer program account, referenced as Team ID 84, we'll see that a bunch of places as well, stating 
that Apple is exercising its right in Apple's sole discretion to terminate your status as a registered Apple developer pursuant to the Apple Developer Agreement and is terminating the developer agreement and the program license agreement pursuant to their terms, we will deny your reapplication to the Apple Developer Program for at least a year, which we will also see is not something that the court gives weight to due to the statements that Apple made at oral argumentation. So that's really the background. We knew most of that, but it's always interesting to see what the court highlights because the court is clearly going to use that as the basis for its decision. In order to obtain such relief, preliminary injunctive relief, plaintiffs must establish four factors. And we know them by heart by now, right? Likelihood of success, irreparable harm, balance of the equities, and the public interest. With respect to the success on the merits and balance of harms factors, courts permit a strong showing on one factor to offset a weaker showing on the other so long as all four factors are established. So you don't have to dominate all of these four factors if you are epic. You have to show that you've got them basically, but you can balance out a weaker kind of number one with a stronger number three and number four, which is exactly what we will see. Thus, under the Ninth Circuit's sliding scale approach to these factors, when the balance of hardships tips sharply in the plaintiff's favor, the plaintiff need demonstrate only serious questions going to the merits. Serious questions is your operative term there. So the court is not going to find that they are likely to succeed. The court is going to find that Epic has presented serious questions, which when the balance of equities and public interest kick in with respect to Unreal are going to win them that injunction. That is the logic that the court uses here. and, And we will see it writ large when we get to the Unreal portion of this. The court and this document spends fully half of its length on the likelihood of success on the merits kind of question and ultimately finds Epic wanting, but tries to establish that they present those serious questions to get to protection for Unreal. For purposes of the motion for preliminary injunction, Epic Games focuses on two of their claims, the monopoly maintenance one and the tie-in claim that the IAP and the app distribution are illegally tied together. Epic Games raises serious questions on the merits. We just saw that, right? They need to raise serious questions in order to get an injunction of any kind, so the court finds that they did. The court cannot conclude that Epic Games will likely succeed on the merits of those claims. Too many unknowns remain. The current legal landscape cautions against preliminarily finding antitrust violations based on less than a full record. As the parties acknowledge, this matter presents questions at the frontier edges of antitrust law in the United States. Simply put, as we've said throughout this series, No analogous authority exists. These are all novel questions. The Sherman Act has never been used this way, has never been used to strike a single brand walled garden like an Apple iOS or like a PlayStation 5 or an Xbox. This is important stuff. And when it's important and when it's novel, it's much more difficult to get a preliminary injunction. As the Ninth Circuit recently recognized in Federal Trade Commission versus Qualcomm, which is a notable case because the Ninth Circuit absolutely flipped and eviscerated the district court's decision in the case. And this is one of those things where I think you can tell the judge is aware of that particular posture of the Court of Appeals and and was trying to encourage these particular plaintiffs and defendants in the cross suits uh, to use a jury trial because she didn't really want to have to go through and write all this up and come to these logical conclusions of her own and then get flipped right around uh, by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. But it's it's worth noting that she does say 
hey, this is why preliminary injunctions are so difficult in this context. Novel business practices, especially in technology markets, should not be conclusively presumed to be unreasonable and therefore illegal without elaborate inquiry as to the precise harm they have caused or the business excuse for their use, quoting United States versus Microsoft, which was, of course, a case that we looked at earlier in the series. Now, they give a bit more color here, but they also explain how antitrust economists and in turn lawyers and judges tend to treat novel products or business practices as anti-competitive. And that is something that the courts try not to do because the power of the court is significant. You're preventing people from otherwise entering into contracts and engaging in the economy as they would otherwise do. And so the court takes a cautious approach to new business practices, especially in technology markets, in a way that Epic doesn't want to hear from the court. Second, the record remains insufficient. That's what, the third or fourth reference to a, an insufficient record at this point in time? The court highlights that the parties retained expert witnesses that are all accomplished and distinguished individuals. And they give a little bit of the background. These expert reports reflect fundamental disagreements from luminaries in the field as to the foundational questions of this matter. There are experts on both sides where Apple says this market definition is ridiculous. Epic says this is the only market definition that could possibly apply. Both sides have experts that the court finds to be luminaries in their field. And the court admits that while ultimately one view will likely prevail, we're probably not going to just have a stalemate here on all of these questions. At this juncture, the court concludes what? That reasonable minds differ. That's almost a saying that could go on a shirt, right? I think that's a really good saying. I think the court has a really good idea there, and we'll just leave it at that. Now, the legal framework for the monopoly maintenance claim is as follows. Epic Games must show both the possession of monopoly power and a causal antitrust injury. This is where the nascent layer lawyers, existing lawyers, whomever might otherwise be appearing on YouTube or Twitter or on your social media feeds really get things wrong. It is not illegal to be a monopoly. You can be a monopoly. In fact, in certain respects, the United States statutory code, even the Sherman Act, and certainly the judicial findings encourage competition to gain that market dominance, to become a monopoly, as long as you don't use that power to harm consumers. You, if you show monopoly power and an antitrust injury, well, then, then you're in trouble. But a threshold step in any antitrust case is to accurately define the relevant market which refers to the area of effective competition. Without a relevant market definition, there is no way to measure the defendant's ability to lessen or destroy competition. Now, this is exactly true. This is what I have talked to you about in this space from the very start, that Epic had tried to define this market so narrowly that it automatically won the case, but that isn't how Sherman works. And for all the reasons that we have seen in terms of counter-argumentation from Apple, you see that that's why this is the big fight at the start of this case. But it is worth noting that Congress just put out a report that seeks to change the entirety of antitrust law, including but not limited to clarifying that market definition is not required for proving an antitrust violation, especially in the presence of direct evidence of market power. Now, we're going to get a little philosophical. We're going to get maybe a little political, depending on how you feel about these statements. This bullet point is absolutely patently ridiculous. It is impossible to establish the presence of market power without first establishing what the living crap the market is. So 
when Congress puts forth this argumentation, it's because they don't like that judges have said market definition is important, but it is very, very difficult to see how it is not important. And even in this one sentence that they have given to the topic, they can't establish how you could show market power without establishing what in the world the word market means. And we talked about this when we covered this report from Congress. We also noted that Congress in general doesn't want the judiciary to be doing what it is doing here. You will see reference to this conservative approach that the court needs to be very careful about novel technologies, as we just talked about, these various kinds of things. Congress wants to say erroneous enforcement is not more costly than erroneous non-enforcement, that the judiciary should be interpreting these laws to ban certain behaviors, even if there's no harm to anyone, and to err on the side of banning the behaviors rather than allowing things that could potentially harm someone if the economist just can't prove it in the court that day. And both of these bullets, I think, are patently absurd. Okay, I think that this report makes some good points. I think there are behaviors of these various big tech companies that really should be looked at. But some of these recommendations are absolutely ridiculous. And certainly, we don't need to define a market to establish market power is probably number one. But the court doesn't have to listen to any of that because that is a recommendation of a subcommittee of a committee in Congress before a law and the court's precedents control over the court's thought process here. The relevant market must include both a geographic market and a product market. The latter must encompass the product at issue as well as all economic substitutes for the product. When we're talking about the market, it matters what you can substitute for access to that market. Apple wants to say Fortnite, you can get Fortnite in a hundred different places. So what are we really talking about here? Economic substitutes have a reasonable interchangeability of use, et cetera, et cetera. In some instances, one brand of a product can constitute a separate market. However, such single brand markets are at minimum extremely rare. It's a very tricky fact pattern to establish that a single brand market exists. And that is what this is, right? Epic has tried to define this market as app distribution on iOS. And that has not historically been what the courts have held to be a valid Sherman antitrust market because every manufacturer could be accused of these kinds of things. Nevertheless, it is legally permissible to premise antitrust allegations on a submarket or an aftermarket, which is one of the arguments that we said was Epic's strongest as presented at this preliminary injunction level. And we will see that the court doesn't feel that Apple adequately addressed it at all. The determination of a relevant market is a highly factual question. Even if a plaintiff establishes monopoly power in the relevant market under the first element, though, courts will not condemn it unless it is accompanied by an element of anti-competitive conduct under the second element. To be condemned as exclusionary, a monopolist's act must have an anti-competitive effect. That is, it must harm the competitive process and thereby harm consumers in contrast to harm to one or more competitors, which will not suffice. And again, in this report, we had seen from Congress that they want to change this. They don't want the Sherman Antitrust Act and the Clayton Antitrust Act to just be aimed at protecting consumers. They want a more nebulous protection for competitors, even if it hurts consumers in a fashion that, once again, I think is a very poor recommendation on some interesting findings of fact uh, from Congress. Anti-competitive conduct is evaluated under the rule of reason. First, 
A plaintiff must show diminished consumer choices and increased prices. Now, going back to that report, this is exactly why Epic is likely to bring this up with the court, right? If we go just to the executive summary of this 451-page report, we see that they describe as follows Apple's behavior. In the absence of competition, Apple's monopoly power over software distribution to iOS devices has resulted in harms to competitors and competition, which Congress cares about more than the judiciary here, reducing quality and innovation among app developers, and importantly, increasing prices and reducing choices for consumers. Now, you can agree or you can disagree with the findings that they put forth in the whole Apple section. Check out that video that we did earlier this week if you're interested in that conversation. But at the end of the day, this magic wording, increasing prices and reducing choices, is the judicial determinant for did you abuse your monopoly power? Epic will bring that up. Epic would be stupid not to. They 100% will. But then if the plaintiff shows that as a prima facie case that they've established that there are potentially diminished consumer choices and increased prices, the monopolist can actually offer pro-competitive justification. And that might be security, as Apple has suggested. That might be any number of other things. And if they succeed in doing that, then it's back on the plaintiff to rebut defendant's claim or demonstrate that the anti-competitive harm of the conduct outweighs the pro-competitive benefit. Rule of reason is a weighted average type of thing, right? That you can show that it diminishes choices and increases prices. The monopolist can say, well, actually, sure, but it does these other things that help consumers. And then the plaintiff can say, maybe, but it actually hurts them more than it helps them. And so the court should still decide on my behalf. It's a much more, as the court says, factually based analysis. And as you can probably tell, it it lives in the court's mind to some extent. This is one of the problems with antitrust. And I know a number of you have come into my comments and said, so much of this is based on opinion and is based on hypothetical thoughts about elasticity of demand and economists of various stripes saying things. That's 100% the case. Uh, And unfortunately, that is what we have to live with in antitrust law as it stands today. And the court just has to deal with it and try to come up with the most reasoned explanation for their opinions that it can give. In summary, the record does not yet establish how the relevant market should be defined. Unsurprisingly, the parties disagree on the product market. Thus, Epic Games narrows the relevant market to consider only how iOS apps are distributed on the iOS platform. Apple, meanwhile, asserts that the relevant market must include competing platforms on which Fortnite is distributed and monetized. Ultimately, the court must discern where competition exists and whether such competition is sufficient to impact price and discipline market players. Now, Epic Games' relevant market definition that iOS app distribution is an aftermarket of the smartphone OS market is plausible, right? We called it one of their strongest arguments here in virtual legality, and the court has a little excoriation for Apple now. Apple fails to respond adequately to the aftermarket theory, devoting a single paragraph to it and stating in a conclusory fashion that this is not an aftermarket case. Should Epic Games continue to assert this theory, narrator, they will, Apple should explain why switching and information costs do not render the iOS app distribution market distinct. Silence can be interpreted as an admission. Now, one of the things I would note about this document, after the court says, hey, look, we don't have enough of a record, we're going to do this with the preliminary injunction, a lot of this is what I would describe as pontificating by the court, just kind of general thoughts out there into the wild. This footnote is that as well. I don't think Apple would actually have to necessarily explain switching and information costs 
as much as they would have to explain that the purchase of the phone at the front end is a holistic decision that understands that the app store exists and that is one piece of the product in a way that Eastman Kodak and their aftermarket theory of the case really isn't. Uh, more than switching an information costs uh, at this level, although maybe you could frame that kind of concept as an information cost uh, defense. But as we pointed out in our video where we said, oh, Apple shouldn't have just done that in one sentence, the court finds that as well. And, and I really think the court is right there. Apple really, really fumbled the ball on that particular argument. However, in some ways, Epic Games offers a fail-safe definition by restricting the market so narrowly, right? We've used the term tautological here insofar as, yes, Apple is a monopolist provider of Apple access. That really doesn't tell us whether or not that should be illegal because everybody is a monopoly provider of their own access. By definition, Epic Games' proposed market definition excludes other smartphone systems, including the Google Android system, as well as video game platforms and their digital distribution markets. Courts have expressly cautioned against such a narrowing of the relevant market definition. Here's a quote they give from a, a case called DuPont. A retail seller may have, in one sense, a monopoly on certain trade because of location or because no one else makes a product of just the quality or attractiveness of his product. Thus, one can theorize that we have monopolistic competition in every non-standardized commodity with each manufacturer having power over the price and production of his own product. That is what you heard me say when I mentioned that Chris Pratt is a monopoly provider of Chris Pratt performances or that Hoag Law is a monopoly provider of virtual legality episodes. No one is going to make a virtual legality episode exactly like me, but that isn't useful in terms of evaluating a Sherman Antitrust Act analysis. And the court is clearly not too thrilled with the notion of a one brand market and is taking it very cautiously and putting forth a lot of the quotes as to why it is doing that. Moreover, Apple averts that an aftermarket requires user lock-in in the primary market. Given the lack of legal citation, the court surmises that this theory has not been adopted by any court, even if embraced by economists. Our Apple argues that consumers are not locked into the purchase of iPhones at the phone level, while Epic Games assumes the purchase and argues that after the purchase occurs, a consumer is locked in and unlikely to switch. Under the latter perspective, app developers who wish to reach iOS users have no choice but to tolerate Apple's 30% rate. But from an actual practical standpoint, is it fair, and you can ask this question yourselves, you can leave comments to this video, for Epic to assume that everybody that buys an iPhone was locked into buying the iPhone at the first instance, that there was no decision-made process about the App Store, about the functionality of the phone, that it was an aftermarket to the purchase of the phone. That doesn't seem to jive with my particular understanding of how people purchase devices like this. Maybe it does for you. Under the latter perspective, app developers who wish to reach those iOS users <clears throat> have no choice but to tolerate Apple's 30% rate. And then we get a great footnote here in footnote 18. The court also leaves for another day the proper classification of the 30% at issue. That is, whether it is a commission, a licensing fee, a tax, or a price. Each may have legal ramifications which have not been fully briefed and therefore carry with them unintended consequences of choosing a term too quickly. Right? You see it referenced here as rate, but it's important to note, right? Epic is saying, oh, it's a tax. Apple's saying, oh, it's a commission, or maybe it's a fee for actually accessing our iOS store. The, the, the court says, we aren't going to call it anything because at a preliminary injunction level, whether it's a tax or a commission or a fee, that might have some legal significance. This is an appealable document and order. I don't want to talk about it. We'll figure that out as the record completes itself, which I thought was an interesting footnote. Thus, at this stage of the litigation and with the record before the court, Apple's relevant market definition is also plausible. 
We see here footnote 19. However, the court notes that Apple's argument assumes a user who owns multiple devices pays attention to prices for in-app purchases and switches devices in response to price increases. There's little evidence that the ordinary iOS con consumer carries such characteristics. And again, this is more the court pontificating about these things. I think that's a fair comment. This is something that the court would probably like to see briefed, would like to see Apple address as this case moves forward. I'm not so certain you actually need to show that everyone is very in tune with these kinds of things as much as they're in tune with it at the macro phone buying level. Apples are more expensive. Androids are a little bit cheaper. Maybe another phone provider is cheaper still. I think you can still have that conversation on the aggregate, but the court makes a good point to say Apple says everybody has this full information and we don't know that that's the case. That's something Apple's going to have to address. Indeed, Epic Games expressly advertised the multi-platform nature of its product following its breach of the Apple terms and service, so maybe there are good substitutes over there. The multi-platform nature of Fortnite suggests that the other platforms and their digital distributions may be economic substitutes that should be considered in an any relevant market definition because they are reasonably interchangeable when used for the same purposes. Epic Games' arguments distinguishing these other platforms as potential economic substitutes have not been sufficiently tested. Again, failure in the record. First, and this is really, really important stuff if you're following virtual legality because you love video games, because you've left a dozen comments in my videos saying none of this should apply to the other walled gardens because Epic says so. Well, the judge thinks you and Epic are wrong. First, Epic Games averts that the iOS market is distinct from other video game platforms because Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft do not make much profit, if any, on the sale of the hardware or console. In fact, we saw this argument brought up when Microsoft decided to adopt their app fairness principles on Windows 10, where it really wasn't in controversy, and said that we're not adopting them on the Xbox console because of the following. Console makers such as Microsoft invest significantly in developing dedicated console hardware, but sell them below cost or at very low margins to create a market that game developers and publishers can benefit from. Given these fundamental differences in the significance of the platform and the business model, we're going to have to figure out what app fairness looks like over here. But over here, the court says this distinction of models is without legal precedent under Section 2 of the Sherman Act. This doesn't matter. If Epic's theory of the case is you as the manufacturer as a piece of hardware has access control over the OS that you have proprietarily put on that piece of hardware, it doesn't matter what your piece of hardware does. Sherman Act, if it applies under these facts, applies to whatever your hardware does. Indeed, Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft all operate similar walled gardens or closed platform models as Apple, whereby the hardware operating system, digital marketplace, and IAPs are all exclusive to the platform owner. As such, a final decision should be better informed regarding the impact of the walled garden model given the potential for significant and serious ramifications for Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft and their video game platforms. And that's all that was brought up here, but literally any other marketplace that has these components, hardware, operating system, digital marketplace, IAP, whatever it might be, within their marketed brand are at issue under Epic's theory of the case. The court properly recognizes that and says, well, we gotta take tiptoes around this stuff. Doesn't mean Epic's wrong. Court could ultimately decide in Epic's favor, but it would have lasting, significant ramifications on whole swaths of the video game industry and potentially beyond. Second, Epic Games averts that the iOS platform is unique, yet Epic Games repeatedly ignored discussions of gaming laptops, tablets, 
and the Nintendo Switch, all of which can be played in a mobile fashion. Said another way, yeah, okay, Epic says that there aren't substitutes here, except they're also saying that there's an open system and phones are really, really different, right? Epic ignores the fact that they aren't so different, and if they didn't ignore that they aren't so different, then aren't there good substitutes and isn't there a lack of monopoly power? There's a big kind of discussion about Apple and Epic here that really both sides haven't fully argued correctly. And I think the court is right to point out that it's essentially a big amorphous miasmic blob as to whether or not Epic is properly defining the market, whether Apple is. And we see them actually comment on Apple's definitions right here. For other reasons, Apple's market definition also faces hurdles. Substitutes may not deprive a monopolist of market power if they fail to affect enough customers to make a price increase unprofitable. That maybe they aren't substitutes because Apple does have all of this control. They can make these price changes and it still would be profitable. Maybe that's something that Apple has to worry about. Notably, the record is completely silent on all these numbers, right? Both parties cite factors impacting the elasticity of their proposed markets. This is the 116 million Fortnite players and the 10% of daily users on iOS and the 63% that only play on iOS. The court notes the record is silent on how many of these 116 million individuals play Fortnite and devoid of information on the characteristics of the 10% of daily active users or whether these users access Fortnite through other platforms. They didn't give all the proper data to even figure out whether these numbers are useful, which is fine. It's a preliminary injunction. But without that usefulness of information, the court says, okay, well, I can kick it because I don't have a complete enough record. Here, Epic Games may establish that app distribution generally should be considered separately from app distribution of individual games, which could have a significant impact on how alternative distribution channels are evaluated, right? Apple tries to collapse this down to Fortnite. Epic tries to say it's all apps. The court says, well, it's a difference in perspective. I I don't know whether or not that makes a lot of sense, and we can't decide it right now, a year before the case would actually be adjudicated. The parties adopt different perspectives, but neither justifies its choice. In short, Without the record to define the relevant antitrust market, Epic Games has not established likelihood of success as to monopoly maintenance, only serious questions. Further, without such definition, the court need not evaluate any of the other elements of the claim. Given the overlap of this issue with the Section 1 claim, we're going to talk about that next. And Section 1 is about tying, tying IAP to the app distribution itself. Tying arrangements under Section 1 of the Sherman Act may be evaluated under either per se or rule of reason analysis. Now here the court points out one of the things that Congress has an issue with, but one of the things that we've pointed out as part of this series, in that Sherman Act broadly prohibits every contract or conspiracy and restraint of trade or commerce among the several states. That's obviously too broad. Every contract anywhere is a certain amount of restraint. That you've agreed to do something that you could otherwise do something else with. If you make widgets or what have you, if you agree to sell them to me, you can't sell them to Bob. And so the courts have said, okay, we have to interpret this as something that makes sense. And so it has been interpreted as saying that restraint of trade means undue slash unreasonable restraint of trade. Now, in respect of per se or rule of reason analysis, per se analysis allows condemnation without inquiry into actual market conditions. Per se under the law basically means it's straight up illegal. We don't need to look at anything else. And if you want to prove that it's per se illegal, you show that something was tied together You had the economic power in the tying product to coerce customers into purchasing the tied product and that the tying arrangement affects a not insubstantial volume of commerce. That you had the power to do it, you tied it together, 
and that it really affected that secondary market of the Tide product. If you can show those three things, generally, that kind of behavior is per se illegal under the court's precedence. Epic Games averts that Apple ties the iOS app distribution product over which Apple has economic power to a separate product of the IAP system. The court concludes that Epic Games has not yet shown that the IAP system is a separate and distinct service from iOS app distribution sufficient to constitute a tie. And that really could be the end of the section, right? Courts don't do that. They have to explain their thought process here, but it could be the end of the section. If you can't establish two separate products, then you, you lose on a tying analysis. Here, as the court finds, the IAP system appears to be integrated with the App Store and historically to have never been a separate product. If so, the construct of the IAP appears to reinforce the notion that the App Store is a digital marketplace where developers on the App Store are able to structure their business models however they choose. And then we get a really, really long footnote. And this goes to answer a number of the other folks that have been commenting on these videos that says the following, Epic Games' Best Buy and QuickBooks analogy misses the mark. Here's what Epic Games said. What Apple wants to do is to have the consumer go into the Best Buy, buy QuickBooks, pay for it. That's fine. That's the app distribution. But then take it home, and every time you do your taxes or every time you close your books using QuickBooks, after you have the product, to keep paying Best Buy every single time another 30%. They are reaching into subsequent transactions. And that was, I believe, issued at uh, oral argument. But either way, the court finds that to not be correct. And a number of folks have come in the comments and said, hey, you buy that phone at the Walmart and you go back home and then Walmart wants another cut. And these are the problems. The court finds those to not work for something like this. And it finds it in an interesting way. It finds it based on historical industrial practices, which I don't think is terribly useful. I disagree a bit with the court here, but let's see what the court says. So the court says that doesn't work for the following reasons. First, in the video game industry, at a brick and mortar store, games were not distributed for free. That is, free-to-play games like Fortnite did not exist. In the digital context, consumers can obtain some games for free, and under the license, no payment from Epic Games to Apple is due in that transaction. So the court says, so first of all, in no instance would a store just allow you to put something out there for free using its storefront or its store shelf space if it didn't have some mechanism to make some money. It's in business. Second, an analogous pre-digital marketplace transaction exists namely the sale of expansion packs. I like that the court just introduced this on its own, uh, clearly a fan of expansion packs from the old days, uh, which could unlock additional content for base version of games, including new gameplay mechanics and functions. Assuming the expansion pack was not available at the time of purchase of the base game, consumers were thereafter required to return to a store to purchase in a separate transaction the expansion pack. IAP appears to operate analogously. The base version of a game is required to play, but IAP similarly unlocks additional content, including new gameplay mechanics and functions. These analogous pre-digital transactions suggest that IAP is not merely a payment processor, as Epic Games contends, but rather an integrated part of the digital marketplace permitting a prior historical business model in the gaming industry. Now, the court highlights that neither party discusses these analogous transactions, but the court discloses that this conceptual similarity further colors the court's analysis, including the need for a more complete record, since we don't think, as the court, you briefed us properly on any of these questions. Now, I personally don't think that the historical business model is a terribly useful analog to any of this, but the court is correct in suggesting that before 
IAP before smartphones. When this was all done, you want to go buy that expansion to Diablo 2. You go back into the store. You get the expansion that opens up what you got, and the store gets some cut of that money. That is correct. And I do think that the court is also correct in saying that it suggests something, that it suggests that the IAP is not mere payment processing, because it isn't. I mean, that's very clear that the, the App Store and the iOS operating system is a storefront and that the IAP is essentially your commission, if you're Apple, for having people know where to go to get these various aspects of these programs. And the fact that you can give it for free means that there has to be some functionality of Apple getting money, just like there has to be some functionality of anybody else that has a storefront and allows people to get access to their products. The IAP system does not appear to be a payment processor in the same way that Visa, MasterCard, or PayPal is a payment processor. It is more akin to a link back to the App Store, whereby the transaction must occur within the digital confines of the App Store. Indeed, it is the court's understanding that all video game digital distribution marketplaces require a consumer to similarly return to the marketplace to complete an IAP. The IAP system appears to have been created in part to capture the value of a developer being on the digital shelf of the App Store, which is owned, which is owed to Apple, either on the initial download or in subsequent IAPs. The court notes that the conceptualization of the IAP system as integrated within the App Store may generally defeat a per se analysis. Microsoft suggests that perhaps the appropriate lens to view a tying claim involving innovative technological business models is under the rule of reason analysis, not under a per se tying analysis, which is exactly what we talked about earlier in this series to say that quoting Microsoft is not terribly useful for this argument as the way that Epic did it in their earlier briefing documents. Nevertheless, the court says, okay, so I'm not sure they're separate products. I really don't think IAP is just payment processing. I still am trying to establish, and I don't mean to suggest that the court worked backwards on this, but just in terms of the reasoning as to why the court got to where it did, I'm still trying to establish that there are serious questions, right? And so you say, Epic Games raises serious questions about the existence of separate demand for IAP-type services, right? Epic Games points to evidence in the record demonstrating that some customers chose to use Epic Games' payment processing service when given the choice with IAP. The court finds that argument that Epic makes to be wrong. The trouble with this argument from the court is that it conflates competition on the merits with Epic's game's goal of avoiding Apple's 30%. It is not surprising that some customers would choose competing payment services if they provided lower prices offered only because of this non-payment. It's not surprising to anybody. This does not evidence separate demand for payment processing services as much as the demand for alternatives to Apple's integrated services of iOS app distribution. Now understand there's a couple of things happening here, right? The court says... Okay, Epic, you've presented serious questions. You presented them wrongly. That by relying so much on just the 30% versus 20% versus 10%, whatever it might be, you've essentially confused the issue. You've conflated the, oh yeah, people like lower prices to them actually seeking demand for a competing service of some kind. And so they, the court says, in this respect, because you conflated these things and I can't really tell whether or not these people care about the integrated service component of the App Store and the IAP, your strongest argument, as the court describes it, left woefully underexplored in the record, lies with competition on other features provided by IAP, such as customer service, parental controls, and security. They bring up in their footnote here that 
Epic Games claims the CEO of the company, Hay, which provides email service, made the following statement months before Epic Games' motion. When Apple forces companies to offer in-app purchases in order to be on their platform, they also dictate the limits to which you can help your customer. And the court finds that that is its own argument for having a separate IAP functionality and much more so than the the, the 30% concept, which the court finds conflated. Now, I have to tell you, I have to take a step back here and say, I, I don't think this makes a lot of sense. I think that price is just as important as security or anything else. So to the extent that Epic has proved that there is some kind of appetite for lower prices, which is not a strong surprise, I think it's just as useful of an argument as parental controls or security features. So, so I don't know that I necessarily agree with the court's thinking here, but it's clear that the court is unhappy with what Epic put forward and is trying to suggest going forward into the future, into this case, that this is the court's thought process and Epic should do well to brief on these specific issues and to highlight this kind of hay issue even more fulsomely. Accordingly, Epic Games raises serious questions with regard to per se tying, but fails to demonstrate the likelihood of success due to lack of evidence of purchaser demand for IAP processing services separate from the integrated service of app distribution. So you have this integrated service problem if you're Epic, right? That if it is an integrated service, then maybe you can't even show any kind of per se tying concept, right? But the court does say that rule of reason could still apply. The rule of reason analysis is more fact-specific than the per se analysis. Here, the first element focuses on the harm to competition and consumers. Epic Games errs by focusing on harm to competitors, and for that reason has not sustained its burden at this juncture. Now, the court also notes, competitors could conceivably provide equal or superior services than IAP, better security, better customer service, and better parental controls. Moreover, Epic Games may be able to prove anti-competitive effects, even if it cannot show separate products. Now, on that latter point, I think that's an open question. If you can show anti-competitive effects in the tying market without showing separate products, I think that would be a difficult thing to do, even for rule of reason analysis. But again, this is the court saying these are the things that might apply. None of the record shows any of this stuff, and that's why I'm going to be denying the preliminary injunction request in specific on Fortnite. Apple, of course, offers a pro-competitive justification consistent with step two of the three-part burden-shifting analysis. They say all this good stuff. It's centralized. It has security and fraud protection. It gives refunds and customer support from Apple. It has these parental controls. All of this stuff. And then under a rule of reason analysis, the burden then shifts back to Epic Games to demonstrate that the pro-competitive efficiencies could be reasonably achieved through less competitive means, less anti-competitive means. Thus, the dispute likely comes down to whether these features and Apple's monetization can be achieved through less anti-competitive means. For the reasons set forth above, Epic Games has shown that serious questions exist with respect to its Section 1 and Section 2 claims against Apple, but has not proven a likelihood of success on the merits on the record. Now, I think even the court thinks that the Section 2 stuff is probably stronger than the Section 1 stuff. The tying really was just established here to establish some some sort of serious questions from Epic, but I really don't see it as strongly as the stuff on monopoly maintenance and on in just in general, the way Apple is operating. That being said, the court has found it. And so the court has found it. Now on the second component of this entire question. So we were just looking at likelihood of success on the merits. We now get to irreparable harm. And here the court really starts hitting Epic pretty hard. They have a problem. They have had a problem from the beginning, from the temporary restraining order and everything that we have heard from the court about Epic's self-inflicted wounds and that self-inflicted wounds are not irreparable injury. Instead, what Epic is trying to claim 
is that it should not be penalized for defying Apple's monopolistic edicts, which we now recognize is, is sounding like Epic, and that the court should proactively extend the principle in support of Epic Games' pro-offer of irreparable injury. Epic Games further avers that ongoing harm continues to its reputation, the Fortnite gaming community, and its ongoing ambitions in the creations of a metaverse. Epic Games does not persuade. The cited cases are singularly premised on the fact that the consequences from a breach of contract in which the parties are seeking to escape are actually in violation of antitrust laws in the United States. As we have said, in this space, that isn't something that you can just claim on your own. Epic Games' citation to Acquier versus Canada Dry Bottling Company is markedly distinguishable. As Apple correctly notes, Acquier involved a defendant who made after-the-fact changes to its policies, did not even comply with its own stated policy, and the plaintiffs made a showing that they would be driven out of business absent an injunction. That driven out of business concept is in a lot of these cases, and Epic doesn't have a chance of proving that. None of these facts are present, where Apple has maintained the same policy since the inception of the App Store, and there is no evidence in the record that Epic Games will be driven out of business based on the unavailability of Fortnite on the iOS platform. This is exactly what we talked about with respect to Acquire in this particular video, Epic's final push. And we went down and looked at the Acquire cases and the case lines and various other references and sub-references and found exactly what the court found here, which is that this isn't a great precedent, doesn't really help them do what they want to do, right? And more fulsomely, Epic can't just exclaim monopoly to rewrite agreements giving itself unilateral benefit, right? And, and you might recognize that particular kind of concept, right? You're not just able to unilaterally on a self-help basis say this contract is illegal and so I don't have to follow it anymore. You have, to, you have to go to a judge. Similarly, you can't just do something like declare bankruptcy and expect it to have any effect whatsoever, right? This is a joke. This is a front of an office episode. But it is similar to what Epic has tried to do here. You declare it an antitrust violation of your own accord, say, I'm allowed to breach it, and then go and ask the court to defend you on that basis. The court says, no, that's our job, not yours. Epic Games cannot simply exclaim monopoly to rewrite agreements, giving itself unilateral benefit. A putative class action on behalf of all developers on these exact same terms was already in progress when Epic Games breached the agreements. The current predicament is of its own making. Epic Games remains free to maintain its agreements with Apple in breach status as this litigation continues, but there is no loss of face if one's goal is to protect its consumers, the Fortnite player base. To assist, the court even offered to require the 30% be placed in escrow pending resolution of the trial, which Epic Games flatly rejected, right? The refusal to do so suggests Epic Games is not principally concerned with iOS consumers, but rather harbors other tactical motives. And we see a lot of these footnotes here. I'm going to skip most of these uh, because you see that the court said your other identified basis, if you're Epic for claiming these things damage to your reputation, strategic decision to breach its own agreements with Apple, the court is just not buying. Even reviewing the record before the court, the court is not persuaded. As the court noted at oral arguments, if anything, it appears Epic Games' actions have only increased its reputation in the wider community. It is further difficult to conceive how Epic Games' own ongoing ambitions in the creation of a metaverse 
would create a basis for a finding of irreparable injury. The court is just not buying anything that Epic is selling on this particular question, really hates that Epic did all this in breach and says, hey, you are harboring other tactical motives. You could fix this. Accordingly, Epic Games has failed to demonstrate irreparable harm as to Fortnite and the games under the Epic Games developer account. By contrast, with respect to Unreal Engine and the Epic affiliates, the court concludes that Epic Games has made a sufficient showing as to the irreparable harm. Indeed, there is ample evidence in the record demonstrating that the removal of developer tools could have significant irreparable harm to Unreal Engine and to Epic Games and its affiliates, and that Apple's threat to revoke developer tools from Unreal Engine is already having a negative effect on Unreal Engine. In this regard, Epic Games could not otherwise be made whole, even if victorious at trial. And that's the important part here, right? When we're talking about a preliminary injunction, yes, you have to show some likelihood of success on the merits and all these various other things, but you're asking the court to do something special before the litigation baseline on the premise that if it doesn't, there is no way, there's no money, there's no mobility to figure out how much you were harmed if you were going to win this case at the end. So if Epic wins this case and the court allows Apple to take these steps against Unreal, how do you fix it? It's unclear what developers have done, how much they've been harmed, how much Epic has been harmed. Epic in this scenario has been proven right, has been defended in their righteous indignation against Apple. The courts have backed them up. Now you have to make Epic whole. How do you do that? And so the court looks at this and says, well, if that's going to be so difficult, we should give the preliminary injunction at this level. Instead, Apple advances three arguments. Apple has a well-established practice of removing affiliated developer accounts. The harm to Unreal Engine is also self-inflicted. And Epic Games and or its affiliates could insert and distribute secret code, harming various things, putting various Russian assets on borders, and all these various other parade of horribles that Apple put forth in its document, which we rightly laughed at when they did so. As the court says, Apple does not persuade. It is clear from the record that Apple's long-standing practice of removing affiliated accounts based on broad language regarding termination and the relevant agreements and guidelines would generally be permissible, right? Apple has a right to terminate whoever it wants for its convenience in most of the language of those documents. However, the court finds a special circumstance. As applied to the specific facts, the court concludes that this matter presents an exception to the ordinary practices. The court notes that the totality of facts is not overwhelming for either side, but leans towards Epic Games on this topic. So understand the framework of all this. Right? So we've got the four factors. We're just talking about Unreal now because Epic is going to lose on Fortnite, and that's pretty obvious throughout all of this. We're just talking about Unreal now. Epic has presented significant questions, but isn't likelihood, it doesn't have a likelihood of success on the merits uh, with respect to the overall case. It leans towards Epic Games with respect to irreparable harm. So you've got these two standards out of four that Epic really hasn't won outright. And so we would expect going forth in this document, and we will see that this is in fact the case, that Epic just has to absolutely dominate the balance of the equities and the public interest, item three and four for the preliminary injunction to issue on this unreal question. And you can see the court is struggling with this a little bit, because as we've said in this series, in general, a litigation shouldn't change your rights under your contract, right? Epic brings it. Apple and Epic agreed to a contract that had a 30-day at-will termination for convenience, right? On both sides, Epic could have walked away, Apple can walk away. And now the court is essentially saying Apple cannot enforce the contract that it negotiated. And that's a special circumstance. That's difficult. It's the kind of thing that Apple might appeal, 
Uh, it's unclear whether they would want to on this, whether they're okay with this. I- I'm not sure that they would, uh, but it's the kind of thing where Apple says, look, we have this contract, right? It was negotiated outside of all this. We could have terminated their account the day before they filed suit. We, we can base our termination on their breach of contract whether, rather than their antitrust lawsuit. So what are you doing here, court? And the court just finds that at the end of the day, they think that Epic and their affiliates should be allowed to support the Unreal Engine. On the one hand, facts weighing in favor of Apple include the agreements are at will, the developer accounts for both Epic International and Epic Games list the same taxpayer identification number. That means it's the same entity for purposes of what Apple sees. A single individual is listed as the registered account holder. A single credit card paid for both accounts. They share the same test devices. The accounts were renewed within a minute of each other. And Epic International receives customer payments made by iOS Fortnite users who are playing outside the United States, which all suggests at bare minimum a kind of tumultuous spider web of entities. Because if Epic International has anything to do with Fortnite, that would seem to play significantly in Apple's favor on this question. On the other hand, Facts weighing in favor of Epic Games and their affiliates are as follows. Each have separate agreements with Apple. Each of the Epic affiliates pays separate consideration. All agreements were renewed at separate times. The Epic affiliates agreements have not been breached. And Epic International has been represented by Epic Games to be a different legal entity despite overlapping financial accounts. So again, this is only based on the record that Epic has presented. The court notes that it's odd that they have the same credit card and the same taxpayer identification number and that Epic International gets money from Fortnite. And you could see the court struggling with this issue and saying, at the end of the day, at the end of this whole document, we just don't want to hurt Unreal, which is fine. The court is looking at an equitable power. It can determine this equitably. But it's having difficulty here. Additionally, despite the inclusion of broad termination language in the agreements, the relevant agreement governing developer tools, SDKs, the Apple Xcode and Apple SDKs agreement is a fully integrated document that explicitly excludes the developer program license agreement. We talked about this right? That Apple was never able to connect outside of historical precedent that they like to terminate these agreements, the developer code agreements, when they don't have a cross-default provision. This is the kind of thing I would very strongly expect Apple to correct. There's really no reason not to have a cross-default provision in this. If you want to get out of business with somebody, you get out of business with them. And the fact that you've been doing it wrongly throughout your entire history doesn't make it right. And so the court looks at this, and I would be totally fine if the court just said, look, These don't have cross-default. They're not in breach. Uh, Figure it out, Apple. It's not our problem. I don't give the same amount of weight to their historical precedents as the court does, either here or with respect to industry practices as we saw uh, before. But regardless of all of that, the court ultimately says, yeah, that kind of leans towards Epic. Although it is a close question, the court finds that with respect to access to developer tools, Apple's reaching into separate agreements with separate entities appears to be retaliatory. The subtext of the letter that they wrote, where one and only one significant product is mentioned, evidences that Apple was impermissibly pressuring and retaliating against Epic Games and the Epic affiliates on Unreal Engine product. And look, we all know that Apple Apple is trying to make it painful for Epic to proceed with this lawsuit. And so it's not wrong for the court to suggest that it's retaliatory on its face. I don't really think that the letter evidences that because the Unreal Engine is clearly Epic's most important kind of piece. I'm sure you could reference old Infinity Blade code or whatever else the various other entities have up there on the store, but I'm not sure I buy the reasoning here, even though I agree basically with the concept that Apple could be seen as acting in retaliation. I'm not sure it's against retaliation of the antitrust lawsuit as much as it is against the breach, which is where we might separate just a little bit. 
In the normal course of business, parties can terminate such at-will agreements pursuant to their express terms, right? And this is the biggest hurdle that the court has to clear. Here, though, Apple reaches beyond these separate agreements to inflict harm or pressure upon Epic Games and the Epic affiliates. In this regard, the injury cannot be said to be self-inflicted. Finally, the court is not persuaded by Apple's exaggerated claims. Remember when we talked earlier in this video about Epic making the court not believe it? That the court said, well, Epic, when you keep bringing up that the hotfix is not deceptive, you strain your credibility with this court. This is very similar. I think Apple made a misstep here. These were so ridiculous. Unreal Engine is going to be used to steal your bank account information and all this stuff that it really hurt the overall rhetoric that they presented to the court. Might have cost them this preliminary injunction on Unreal. Court finds Apple's claims to be exaggerated. However, to the extent any valid concern exists, it is easily remedied by narrowing the scope of the injunction to permit Epic affiliates' continued access to the developer tools and to the App Store only so long as such applications and the Epic affiliates remain in continued compliance with the terms of the relevant agreements and guidelines. Now, note you have the second reference here, right? Most of this discussion is about the SDKs because that's the strongest argument Epic has, that they are integrated documents. The court also says access to the App Store, which is also important. It's what Epic wants, but those arguments aren't nearly as strong in the entirety of this section. So the court just kind of slips it back in that, yeah, maybe we could slice this onion. Maybe we could say they have access to the developer tools, but not to the App Store. We don't want to do that. We just want to say you can't act against the affiliates. They don't really explain fully why Apple should not be able to use the termination provisions that they have under those at-will agreements. They just say that it's retaliatory to inflict harm, but the contracts that are negotiated can be negotiated for any purpose. If I'm allowed to terminate for any reason or no reason, it can be for no reason. So the court doesn't really make the case about the App Store as well as I think they make the case against the SDKs. Regardless, they say Epic slightly wins this on the irreparable harms question, and the court notes that expanded briefing by Apple on the agreements and its historical practice has made this a closer question than was presented earlier. On balance, however, and in light of the foregoing analysis, the court concludes that ongoing irreparable harm and significant potential irreparable harm to Unreal Engine exist absent a preliminary injunction. This is one of those things, right? All of this notation, this is really close. And if you don't get above the threshold here, if Apple wins this even slightly, you really start to have a problem giving the preliminary injunction on the Unreal Engine protection. So this is the kind of thing where Apple might be inclined to say, all right, let's go talk to somebody else. Balance of equities. As we suggested, this is where Epic is really going to take off uh, with Unreal, right? We see, first, Epic Games dismisses Apple's concern that an injunction with respect to Fortnite would set off a rash of other developers breaching their agreements. Second, the balance tilts towards Epic Games where the injunction seeks to ensure that Apple complies with antitrust laws. These are their claims. Epic Games does not persuade on either of these two bases. As Epic Games states, the loss of commissions to Apple would be for a short duration and would be easily compensable. The converse is also true. Finally, the court finds that the balance of equities weighs towards Apple where Epic Games breached both its agreements and the guidelines, and an injunction would potentially incentivize similar breaches among developers. Nor is a breach required to maintain or even commence this lawsuit as reflected by the fact that the named plaintiffs in Cameron, that's the big lawsuit about the rest of the developers, did not breach their agreements. The court declines to incentivize breaches of contracts where the, where the legality of those provisions has not yet been conclusively or presumptively determined to be illegal. The balance of equities tilts sharply towards Apple on the issue of Fortnite. By contrast, the court finds that the balance of equities weighs in favor of Epic Games and the Epic affiliates, including as to Unreal Engine, on the issue of continued access to developer tools 
and the App Store for the Epic affiliates. The only equity that Apple has identified concerns an alleged potential Trojan horse or insertion of malicious code by Epic Games or the Epic affiliates. Apple's aggressive targeting of separate contracts in an attempt to eradicate Epic Games and its affiliates fully from the iOS platform was unnecessary and imperiled a thriving third-party developer ecosystem. And as you can see, reasonable minds can differ on this. I I think Apple actually, their Trojan horse argument clearly took up all the air in the room and took up all the air in a way that really, I think, harmed most of their arguments on this score because I think their better argument by far is simply, hey, look, they hid something. Their rest of their companies could also hide something and we don't want to have to deal with it, nor should we have to. You don't have to say that Russian deployments are at issue, that financial information can be stolen. You don't have to go through those pages of really kind of false parades of horribles in order to arrive at they hid from us. That was an act of deception. We don't trust them any longer and we have a contract that gives us the right to not trust them any longer. And so I I think maybe that would have worked better. I think the court was probably pretty set in its mind on the fact that Unreal should be protected, uh, but I don't think Apple did itself any favors. Finally, on the public interest, uh, there is significant public interest in requiring parties to adhere to their contractual agreements or in resolving business disputes through the normal course. Epic Games cites authority that it is not in the public interest to enforce illegal contracts. Of course, those cases presuppose a showing on the illegality of the contract where Epic Games has not yet done and are therefore an opposite, inapplicable, right? Epic does this throughout its briefing documents. It's one of the things we talked about where they just assume they're right and then all this stuff should follow. The court says, no, that's our job. Thus, the public interest factor weighs in favor of Apple as to Fortnite. Epic Games and Apple are at liberty to litigate this action for the future of the digital frontier, but their dispute should not create havoc to bystanders. Thus, the public interest weighs overwhelmingly in favor of Unreal Engine and the Epic affiliates. Therefore, Apple and all persons in active concert or participation with Apple are preliminarily enjoined from taking adverse action against the Epic affiliates with respect to restricting, suspending, or terminating the Epic affiliates from the Apple's developer program on the basis that Epic Games enabled IAP direct processing in Fortnite through means other than the Apple IAP system or on the basis of the steps Epic Games took to do so. However, and this part is new, this preliminary injunction shall remain in effect during the pendency of this litigation unless... The Epic affiliates breach any of their governing agreements with Apple or the operative App Store guidelines. So if you do anything bad, if you do steal that financial information, if you do a hot fix that doesn't actually tell Apple what it does, if you are otherwise interacting with Apple and it's in breach of their governing agreements or the operative App Store guidelines, this injunction does not help you. Apple can take the steps that they want to take. Now, it's worth noting That one of the complaints against Apple that Congress makes, that other developers make, is that Apple sometimes makes arbitrary decisions under their App Store guidelines. And so Epic might look at this and say, maybe we need to appeal this limitation because Apple could just decide whatever it is that they want to decide. They also reserve the right, of course, to amend their App Store guidelines to do whatever they want. So if they amend the App Store guidelines, is that applicable to this? Should this have been referenced only as to the guidelines as they exist today at the start of litigation? I don't know. These are the interesting questions that both Epic and Apple are going to have to deal with now. But at the end of the day, 39 pages later, what we know is that as of today, Apple can keep Fortnite off the store. The court says Epic can return Fortnite to the store if it turns off direct payment. Apple cannot take actions against Unreal or the other Epic affiliates. But if they make a wrong step, Apple can get rid of them as well.
So, <clears throat> this concludes the final first part, the, the end of the beginning of Epic versus Apple. We've seen certain things, other things have happened in this court case that I haven't covered on this channel. They both agreed to a bench trial, a trial held by the judge rather than by a jury. It looks like the court case is going to take place uh, in the spring, the late spring of next year. We'll see if that date holds. Uh, but right now, 24, 25 episodes in, I think this is probably the end of an antitrust epic in virtual legality until things really proceed uh, a little bit further. So if you have questions, if you have comments on what you saw about this preliminary injunction, about things we've said in this series earlier, if you want to talk to me about these kinds of things, please do so. Please tell people that we're here, that we're having these kinds of discussions. And I think we might be talking about this with some other YouTube lawyers, some other folks uh, in the near future. So please do check out those if and when they happen. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.